G'day Inverse community, I'm Jared McKenna and I can't tell you how excited I am about my co-host Dr Drew Hart's new book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. To quote that towering 20th century figure of God's justice, love and deliverance, Abraham Joshua Heschel, there are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. For Heschel, much like the Hebrew prophets and that nonviolent Messiah of justice named Jesus, faith is not merely to be believed, faith is to be embodied. Drew Hart is fast becoming a go-to voice for articulating a practical and prophetic embodied faith in our time. In these additional episodes, alongside our regular interviews, I think you'll hear why. Over the next coming weeks, we will interview friends and co-workers in what John Lewis called Good Trouble to discuss chapter by chapter Doc Drew's new book. These conversations were recorded in community with friends from around the world as part of Inverse's ongoing work to create formation experiences that deepen our witness to God's justice, love and deliverance. So grace and peace to you. Enjoy this conversation on this chapter in Drew's new book. So it is my pleasure to introduce Brandy Miller, um, and I, I'll have to get some updated information. I, I believe uh, that you are still a campus minister. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Um, certainly a former uh, writer and columnist at Huffington Post, associated also with Salt Collective. I know you've been interested around a whole variety of stuff like faith, justice, and politics, decolonizing Christianity, holistic faith. Any updates? Uh, what, how else, a better way to describe um, your life now and what you're about? Yeah, the main two things I do right now, I direct and consult uh, justice programs around the country for the campus ministry organization that I've worked for for nearly the last 10 years. So helping students have immersive experiences interacting with their faith. And then I host a podcast called Reclaiming My Theology, engaging with different types of injustice and how it impacts the way that we see God, each other, and the world. Well, I'm sure that uh, Inverse listeners will love your stuff, and so they will be subscribing, I'm sure. We'll be all clicking and listening in on the great work that you're doing. You're someone that I've, uh, we've never actually spoken, interacted in person like this, um, yeah. certainly a little bit on Twitter, right? But, yes. um, but it's nice to be in conversation with you. I see you as someone very committed to wrestling and grappling with the, the role of white supremacy and its entanglements in Christianity, right? That that seems to be something that I've seen and witnessed in, in your own work and writing and concerned about decolonizing the faith as well. Um, and so if that's correct, and you can correct me if you want to nuance that, but what experiences have shaped your journey in that direction? I'm kind of curious about like what brought you to that. Sure. I'll give you the short version, which is essentially that I grew up in a rural white community as the only black person in a white family. And so I grew up in a military family with a lot of police allegiance. And my uncle is a privatized military sniper. And I am a pacifist Christian, right? And so there's, there's all of these ways in which my family background and existing around people who are fiercely different than me, who shaped me, came into contact with the person of Jesus around middle school for me. And I was first indoctrinated into white supremacy and colonization, that kind of, that kind of internal colonization then, and then have had to unlearn those things in my adult years. 
and figure out all of the ways that my background hasn't actually served me knowing Jesus, but has created barriers to me understanding the shalom way that we see throughout all of scripture. And so I think my family background is a huge part of that. Uh, one part of it was that I followed that train of white evangelicalism all the way into college, which was in 2008. And so in my first presidential election, I voted for John McCain and Sarah Palin. Can't take that back. Voting records are public. So <laughs> I, I did that and because I believed that there was no way that one could be Christian without being Republican. And mm, so right, right. I encountered this group of followers of Jesus who were so committed to scripture and so committed to each other, but also so committed to justice. And I thought these people have lost the gospel. They're so liberal. They've lost Jesus. They're so into their identities. And I, I was really spiritual for having divorced my identities from what was true and objective. But in being around this group of grace-filled, kind, merciful, abundantly merciful people, I came to recognize the ways that their faith actually had feet and hands and wheels and healing power that my faith didn't have. My faith only existed in my mind and in my heart, and it had no real implications on anybody's lives around me. And so that has shaped the ways that I look back now on my family background, because I think it'd be very easy to divorce myself from those folks and to let that not be a shaping factor anymore. But instead, I feel like there's been an invitation as a part of my own formation into further decolonization, not to do the thing that white supremacy does, which is eliminate enemies, but to do the Jesus way, which is to love, understand, and have compassion for enemies. So Mm, that's where my journey finds me right now and all of that. I'm wondering if this, if it resonated with you and all, but in the beginning, obviously I tell stories about my time. So I, I, you know, come to this Christian campus and I'm having these chapel experiences. And for the most part, they're mostly mundane, like nothing to write home about for the most part. But I write about these two experiences, right? That were, I mean, I still, I still talk about them to this day. Um, Just so memorable about, you know, what precisely students clung to, what, what deeply, you know, drove them to stomp out and to leave in the midst of someone speaking, especially, mind you, that is no small feat when people have to swipe for chapel credits, right? Um, the fact that they would miss out part way, that means they're very serious. And so I'm, I'm thinking about like those kind of things and wondering, like, do you, did you, do you have your own parallel experience? Have you seen that kind of faith unfold? Did you have your own memories of moments where, you know, whether it be religious nationalism or white supremacy was just clinging so much to racial, I mean, to people's identities that 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 ultimately won out? I'm curious for your own sake. Yeah, there's two things that come to mind. One is when I, you know, in churches where they have like little um, bulletin racks that sometimes have like local newspapers or things like that. When I was 17, I remember walking into my church and picking up a newspaper out of there because I was so wanting to know Jesus. Like I had this earnest love for Jesus and I wanted to know what other Christians thought about things and to follow Jesus the way that my church family followed Jesus. And I picked up a newspaper and on the front of it, there was an article title that was describing Barack Obama as the Antichrist. Mm. And it had his full name, Barack Hussein Obama, the Antichrist. And I was like, I mean, I've read the Left Behind books, so I guess someone has to be the antichrist and they say Jesus is coming soon. So why not now? But there was something in me that was like, hold on, George W. Bush, can we make sense of this? Like, can we make sense of his violence of all these? Can we make sense of why this man is beyond his blackness and his name can be considered the antichrist? And so I think for me, there was a moment of just going, hmm, 
And it wasn't people walking out of a room. It was a group of my church friends walking into a room to be indoctrinated in this way that I was like, Ooh, maybe there's something there. Yeah. And then I also have a Christian college experience. Uh, I didn't go to a Christian college. I thought that all Christians should go to Christian college. And I applied for one private liberal arts college and ended up going there. But I dual enrolled at a Western Baptist, I guess it's a university now. And I took classes there. And one of my main classes was Old Testament. But the main thing I learned in it uh, was anti-Semitism and mm. anti-Muslim sentiments. And so regularly, my professor would say these anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim things. And I feel like it had to have been the Holy Spirit being like, whoa, no, no. And I remember turning to one of my classmates and going, hey, does that seem right to you? And she was like, well, I don't know. It's, it's in the Bible. And then the professor was like, do you have something to say to the class? And I was like, uh, <laughs> this seems like this isn't, this doesn't seem right. And they were like, yeah, but it's the Bible. And so there was no concrete evidence behind anything other than it's the Bible. And a group of people were writing answers on tests that dehumanized people around them in such a way that I couldn't align, but could see that there was this Christian momentum moving toward that was called biblical without being anywhere in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm curious about like what, what, what uh, as you were reading the chapter, what, mm -hmm. where, where, where are you coming from? What, what kind of did you kind of orient yourself around? Well, actually I had a question for you. As yeah. I was reading your stories about these, these chapel experiences, you yeah. mentioned a lot that you went to a black church and had these experiences that allowed you to stay in the room, yeah. but you didn't say very explicitly, what were those things that you think helped you stay in the room yeah. that your white counterparts didn't have, even though being in a black church, you've still lived in a white supremacist society. So what do you think actually kept you in those spaces? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually a really fascinating question. What was it that kept me in those spaces? I mean, I think... I mean, now, now, if so, like one of the things I say in my first book is that, that my black Christian community didn't prepare me for white Christians, right? <laughs> like, so, so there's a part, there's a little bit of naivety also. The, I mean, let's, uh, and that, that's not the case for all black Christian communities, but I do think in, in a particular way, um, we were, there's this deep belief. I mean, it may, maybe it's very idealistic, but this deep belief around what it means to be in Christ, right? I mean, that was just so profoundly shaped. So our sense of belonging wasn't just racial belonging. Our sense of belonging, while we certainly, like our primary sister churches were African-American in the city and stuff like that, there was this deep sense in which um, we belong together, right? And so there was this entering in, a little naive in terms of, of um, maybe not fully grappling, or at least I hadn't fully grappled with, been prepared to grapple with, um, white Christians racism, but, but there was this way in which my identity was deeply connected so that I saw them as us, as me, right? We together um, in a way that I think was not being reciprocated in that space. So I think that was a part of it, um, was my own sense of identity and belonging was more expansive than I think um, many of my peers. I think that for many of my peers when, and I still hear sometimes among some of my students, like, even by accident, it just kind of comes out their we is clearly white, right? When they say we sometimes, um, you clearly, all of a sudden I realize my community is not being included in this we, right? Um, and so I guess that would be the, the initial thing that comes to my mind. Let me think there's anything else. What else? Um, and I would just say, I mean, in general, what was modeled and practiced in our community was, I mean, we, as an African-American church, like, 
we had white people in our congregation. They were never a large portion. Like it was always a few, right? Uh, we had Sister Helen, right? I mean, older, sweet. She was, she was like almost treated like a mother of the church, white woman, right? Who had just, she had been around for like most of, everybody just loved on this woman. They cared for her. Like, yeah. I, so even though most white people would, would have never opted to make our church family home for them, when white people did, like, love was like abounding for white people in that space, right? And that's just what I knew. I just knew that that's, that's what Christians do when you enter their space. So I, I was shocked the first time when I was an undergrad student and we're, you know, out looking at churches and, you know, I just go with friends because I don't have my own car. So I hop in the car with others to check out churches and just the lack of love that I received, I was baffled. It's like, I mean, even just some places to be invisible in some spaces, not even just hostile, but just, I, I just couldn't fathom that. I just didn't understand what that even meant, even as everyone would, you know, I'm sure think of themselves as the most welcoming church, right? And so I, I do think there were some things that were modeled in our own sense of identity and belonging that was much more expansive, even as people were proud to be black and that shaped their sense of lived experience in significant ways, but it was much more expansive in Christ, I think, for identity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this chapter for me, um, I feel like um, was the least focused chapter of this book for me, right? Or at least or maybe I should say it like this. It's focused in terms of like what I, I know what I'm trying to do, but, it, but I just never feel like I can quite get my arms around it all the way because just so much, right? So much stuff happening. Um, so much so that sometimes I risk like I'm saying too much by, and almost by saying too much, not saying anything at all, right? When you go a little too far, like what's the risk of saying so much? Uh, but my hope was that I could combine um, a Christendom critique with the critique of colonialism and white supremacy, because I feel like theologically, those two are often separate critiques from one another, right? They're not often made together as a kind of cohesive story. And I wanted to like, I mean, that's why I start the chapter out with, you know, you know, Christian supremacy births white supremacy into the world. I want to tie these tighter together in people's understandings um, because they are separate. And I think that you do need to be brought together. So I'm curious, even for you, like, as someone who likes to think about like decolonizing the faith and stuff, um, how, wh- what do you think about thinking historically? How, how, and, and, or maybe another question along with that, or aside to that would be is, um, what voices are in your head as you're thinking historically and thinking about um, where we need to go moving forward? Well, the voices that are in my head as of late have been the voices of my indigenous friends whose stories have been erased largely from historical accounts that favor the winner and whose interpretive frameworks always favor the winner. That's something we all lose in the dehumanization that happens to all of us in a white supremacist society. So I think that as I, as I learn more from my indigenous friends and how they tell stories and invite me into story that has been shaping for me, because I think what I see in a lot of the story of Constantine, even before and up to this point is a focus on doctrine and not story. And when we focus on doctrine, we lose who we are because who we are is passed down informed by story. And so when I think about history right now, one of the things that I've been considering often is that history feels a lot like a violent game of telephone where a group of people get to tell, they t- they're telling something that's true about Jesus. They're telling something that's true about the world. They understand something that is true about what's happening for them. 
But as that gets passed on and passed through the lenses of power, that it gets so distorted that by the time it gets to us, we cannot recognize the Jesus that has been passed down to us. Yeah. And so I think we see that in the Constantinian shift where he doesn't, he's not wrong, but he's definitely not right. And in his not being right, he, he warps the message just enough that it gets passed on and on and on like a baton in a relay race to where Christians feel like the winners because we've carried it this far. And so that, I think that'd be my kind of short, short yeah, yeah, version yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious, um, do you have thoughts? Um, I, this can go in any direction you want to, but thoughts on white Jesus, westernizing <laughs> white Jesus. When I think about white Jesus, I first have to think about iconography and how iconography matters. And when we look at the ways that Eastern Orthodox iconography was in and of itself not an evil thing. Us creating some kind of image to understand God in our experience isn't an inherently evil thing. But when we marry those images to power and to violence and to the sword we end up with some pretty severe consequences and issues. And so I often think about those images of white Jesus, like these kind of iconography, old images. And I can separate those from Kenny Loggins' Jesus that a lot of us had probably on our, on our walls at our church, or like Jesus cuddling a lamb, like who would want to do that? And I think we have those images in our mind. But to me, what is the modern pain of white Jesus is that white Jesus is assumed in the ways that white supremacy does as normal, right, and the only way. Right. And in such marginalizes all other images of Jesus. So like even I have, uh, if I can get off my wall, right? I have, an, I have an image of black Jesus being held by his mother at his crucifixion. And this would have been seen as a blasphemous image to me growing up right. because it fell outside of what I saw as this kind of Republican right wing white Jesus, because the, what I was being taught by white men from the pulpit looked a lot like Jesus. And we were, if we were supposed to look like Jesus and our pastors looked most like him and they were white, then of course Jesus looked like what they thought because that was the only image we received. Right. And so I think when we give power to the pulpit to folks who look like white Jesus, and then we say that Jesus is white, then we create all kinds of contexts for the violence that we would perpetuate from those spaces. Yeah. What do you think about yeah. white Jesus? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you completely. I mean, I think, and I think it is that multi, I mean, cause I, I think it's interesting in our current moment, there has been a little bit of conversation around white Jesus in, in connection to also the Confederate uh, statues being taken down. Like people made those connections um, and some people got really touchy and it's interesting. I mean, cause I think there's multiple, like, there's the, the literal visual image of Jesus, which is problematic, right? Um, what it mean, What does it mean to westernize him, one thing, and then whiten him on top of that in the context of a white supremacist society, right? Um, and then that then goes to a whole nother layer, which is separate from just the image of Jesus, but then literally what I call is the making Jesus the mascot for the status quo, right? Or for social dominance. And I think that in whitening him, even it's a theological problem just as much because it takes him and ties him to the crucif- to the crucifiers rather than the crucified, right? Yes. Um, and so I think that there's so much there that needs to be unpacked. Yes, I mean, so like I, I'm at a church that's like over 100 years old and, uh, you know, anybody can tell you like from the moment I stepped in there, um, I had problems about the white Jesus and the stained glass. It's just, so it's in this black and brown community now but the church that began, it was this old white, you know, uh, Church of the Brethren congregation that had all these white images of Jesus. And I'm like, these things got to go. But even deeper than that is, how, how, what are we going to do about uh, white Jesus beyond just the visual in our, and the assumptions around what we teach and expectations around 
what, what the good life looks like, right? What kind of life we're yes. supposed to live, um, which in some ways then black people, brown people, indigenous people can only approximate that, right? Because you can mm-hmm. never fully become that. You yes. can, you, um, and so I think that there's some really powerful stuff that I think we've got to grapple with when we're thinking about white Jesus. Yeah, I call that the demon or principality of white Jesus, yeah. the, like mm. the operating underlying principle that navigates or dictates how we navigate our values and visions in the world. The the demon that would whisper that individualism or defensiveness or appropriate responses to communal issues, that progress is always bigger and more, or that we need to always be creating and creating and creating and replicating and replicating and replicating our chaos. And so, yeah, I, I hear that. Um, principality that you're naming underneath the image itself of white Jesus. So what what kind of practices and disciplines do you think might be helpful as Christian communities and organizations are seeking to decolonize their faith? Well, this feels really fresh for me right now because I'm consulting a church and they sent me a, they, they so have the heart to decolonize. They they put it in their goals. Like we want to decolonize our theology, our worship, our practices. And I was like, that's not really a goal. That's an aspiration. Um, but they had this whole list of goals that seemed like they had kind of downloaded them from like woke Christian Instagram. And we're like, well, we want to decolonize. And I just like felt like I had to princess bride them and be like, I don't think that doesn't mean what you think it means. I don't think you think that means what you think it means. And the problem was, was that they wanted to have like a one month or three month plan to change their worship, to decolonize their theology, to hire a new pastor who was a woman of color. Yes, three months, y'all. And they wanted this thing to go fast. And I kept saying, I kept having to go, hey, that's not a goal. That's, that's an idea. Hey, that's not a goal. That's, a, that's, not, that's not it. <laughs> and so one of the major practices I think that we have to do in our own personal lives and in our collective lives is to be willing to slow down when we're making big decisions because big decisions made in haste will always further marginalize the most marginalized or tokenize those who we want to center. And so I had to write them back a proposal that was like, before you can do any decolonizing, we have to decolonize your decolonizing process. Like we have to prepare your church for a change process because your heart's desire to decolonize is actually undermined by your lack of ability in your spiritual community to slow down enough to listen Mm. and to know that not every moment is a moment to rush. And I think there's times where we have to have a sense of urgency and that process is an urgent one to begin, but the attributes of it itself have to be slowed down. So I think slowing down is one of the main ones that I think about right now. And then the other one is just diversifying who we listen to, diversifying who gets to have voice in our spirituality and learn to legitimize other people's stories by hearing them and not just by abstractly believing that other people's lives and stories matter. So the personal example that I'm working through right now is I had something like 600 books sitting on my bookshelf. Most of them were written by white men. And any book that I was like, that I've read a million times through the pastors that have preached their messages to me, I just got rid of. So I got rid of 400 books in the last, like in the last two years, 150 to 200 of them in the last few weeks. And I'm just not listening to white guys for a while. Like I'm just not doing it. And so I've had some people come back and be like, oh, that's mean, or that's shutting out voices of God's people. But I'm like, these are the only voices I've ever heard. So it's okay for them to have what I'm going to call a Zechariah moment of silence out of Luke 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. And and I think that um, both of those, I think, are really powerful. I mean, the slowing down. I was in class um, last night. So I teach a Monday night class and it's on, you know, the mission vocation of the church and 
Um, and the conversation came up around like efficiency and I was critiquing and it was interesting, like how some people like, well, what's wrong with being efficient, right? Isn't, isn't there urgency to, to the vocation of the church? And I was like, well, there can be urgency without necessarily um, trying to do things efficiently. Um, like you can feel the urgency of why this matters and the seriousness and the weight of it. And it's precisely because of that, that we've got to um, um, be faithful to how we engage and hear stories and whose stories get heard and not just breeze through. Right. And I think that it can be hard. I mean, sometimes we got to do the slow cooker and, and we just, we throw it in the microwave anyway. Right. Um, and, and, and then you have a soggy, you know, meal. Right. Um, and, and I think that that is, is a very hard, I think, lesson to learn um, how to be community actual. Cause it, I mean, some of the slowing down is actually about, valuing the people in your midst, not just the process that you're trying to get through, right? Um, yeah, and I think that's really powerful. Um, yeah, anything else that you wanna bring up before we go? Yeah, I have, I have one question for you that, that kind of felt like yeah. it was sitting on the surface. So there, yeah. there are a lot of scholars and theologians who talk about how we live in a capitalist society and we can't fully extricate ourselves from that, from that system and we have to figure out how to live in it. I think the same could be said about white supremacy in its current form in the U.S., especially as we're in this election season. And y'all are on here, so glory to God for that, because the debate isn't, it's a mess. Like, it is just white men interrupting themselves about things that no one cares about. It is an anxiety-producing mess. But because I am an American, I can't pull myself from that system fully. So what do you think a prophetic witness looks like in a system that we can't fully pull ourselves out of? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, um, and I'll try to do it justice in a few minutes. Uh, I mean, I think that there's a couple of things that I think the church ought to do. Number one is, how do we live as a counter witness in society, right? As a, so what does it mean for us to practice something different in terms of how we use our resources, how we distribute resources, um, and who has access to those resources when we do, right? I think that how we actually live um, in community together is the starting point that we ought to have an emerging counter economy emerging within the life of our own communities. And it should be growing and it should be multiplying. And, and, and so that's one aspect. And then I think that we have to have a prophetic witness in response to it, to name what is happening around us. Now, I mean, I'll be honest, I'll be the first one to say like, you know, I say that one day and, you know, next day, you know, I have an Amazon package coming in. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I feel so hypocritical and I have to name that. I need to confess, mm-hmm. right, that I'm, I'm the hypocrite in the room sometimes um, when, I, when I do that very thing. And so, um, but, but I do think that when we're not doing it alone, um, that when we're doing it in community together, it not it is more sustainable. Like it, it's almost silly. It's it's pointless when we're just thinking about being lone rangers to kind of buck the system and do something else, right? Um, but when we do it together with others, I think there's something meaningful that can happen. And it's easier to do, right? When you do it to others, um, you're encouraged and you're supported and you're held accountable um, by others. If we can name those things and we can speak into each other's lives, I think that that's really significant. Um, and can imagine, I mean, one of the things our, our church has just been starting to do is talk about like, what does ecclesial reparations look like and mean, right? We, I'm a part of a church. It's a multiracial church. We have a black woman as the lead pastor um, in a black and brown neighborhood, but it's also a lot of white folks who've been around for a long time. And some of them have access to resources in other kind of ways. 
And so we're having starting conversations at the very earliest. But what does ecclesial reparations look like, right? Um, so how does Jubilee ethics begin to shape our imagination that Jesus taught? How do we actually live that out on the ground in radical ways in light of the racial wealth gap and disparities that exist in our society? So I, I think that those are some of the things that I would point us towards. And I think that there are examples of communities that are certainly in different ways doing things well, right? Um, that are bucking the system. Even, I mean, I'll go not, well, maybe they're not the perfect example, but, but even the way in which at least conceptually old order Mennonite communities, right, um, can live so distinctly. Now, sometimes there's still a lot of wealth is what I hear in some of these communities, but nonetheless can have an alternate kind of ecosystem that they've created, can hope, can spark our imagination for a whole variety of options that are available to us. Um, I think the, what is it, the Jackson plan, right? There's kind of radical economic plans that are happening on the ground that I think um, we can draw on and learn from in terms of what we're doing in our own context. Um, and then we improvise and contextualize in those spaces. So anyway, that's half of an answer. Um, yeah. um, and some of it hopefully will be a better answer as we, um, as in my own community, as we practice these things together, right? I mean, I think that that is always the best way to give an answer is when we're actually living these things out more radically um, on the journey together. Uh, but anyway, thank you so much, Brandon. This has been such a pleasure. Always grateful for your voice. Um, so, so profound and deep and thoughtful and encouraging. And so I'm just grateful for you making some time to be with us today. Um, how can people um, stay in contact with you? Uh, uh, the best way right now is through my podcast, Reclaiming My Theology. Right now we're talking about uh, Reclaiming My Theology from American Politics, uh, but previously and right after this, we're going to continue the conversation on reclaiming our theology from white supremacy. So taking the attributes of white supremacy one at a time, asking how they've infiltrated and infected our theological frameworks and how we see God and others and doing that. So if people want to find me, that's the best way to find me at the moment. Thank you very much. Bless you, Brandy. Thanks for having me, y'all. If you want to be part of this growing global community, you can find more details on our Inverse Patreon page. We are seeking to practice a Jubilee economics to make these experiences accessible to everyone wherever you're found, be it in remote communities in the Kimberley or a township in Cape Town or downtown Berlin or on the south side of Chicago or the suburbs of Sydney. We want to make this accessible for you, so let's work to do that together. I see a slide.